Welkom by SL Gemeente Media. I invite you to turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to uh, Mark, Mark chapter 5, and then into cha- we read into chapter 6. Very famous passage, uh, stories we all know quite well, uh, but oftentimes we don't read all of these stories together to get the, the flow and the impact of what God is saying here. I begin in Mark chapter 5 with verse 21, and I read into Mark chapter 6 to verse 6. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, "'My my little daughter is dying.' Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? (laughs) You could see people crowding against you, his disciples answered. And yet you ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, He took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him, 
that he, he even does miracles. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. May God bless to us this reading from his holy word. Well, good evening. It's uh, very good to be with you again. It's kind of a, an honor and a privilege, or, or it might be a reflection of how desperate Davi was to have somebody come in and said, Rod, please, please. So, but no, it's a, it's a real joy and a, it's a treat uh, just to be here and to be able to share. And, and I wanted to talk with you tonight about a disease that is afflicting the body of Christ uh, in, in many places around the world, but particularly here in the United Kingdom. And it's a disease, although it is a spiritual disease, it is every bit as destructive as cancer is to the human body. In fact, this disease begins much like cancer does. You know, cancer starts with uh, a cell or a two, two cells or three cells that uh, start to go bad and then begin to multiply and pollute the other cells around them until finally there's more and more death and sickness and illness and after they grow to a critical mass then we become sick in our bodies and and many times at that stage it's too late many times by the time we notice it with cancer it's grown and multiplied to the extent that it's very difficult to eradicate and in the same way this disease that debilitates the body of Christ, not only uh, churches, but also individuals within the body of Christ, individual Christians, this disease begins every bit as subtly and quietly as cancer can start in the body. And just like the the disease that we call in the States chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, we call it in the UK uh, uh, ME, Uh, just as that disease just weakens us so that we have no energy to do anything. So this disease, the spiritual disease, will weaken us individually and corporately and, and drain our energy, drain our life, drain our vitality until eventually this disease can actually derail us in our, in our walk with Jesus Christ, cause us to fall away from Jesus, not necessarily lose our salvation, but fall away from Jesus. And this disease, if left unchecked, will cause us to be completely fruitless in our lives, not only individually, but corporately. And this disease influences our families. This disease influences our relationships. This disease influences your your work in the marketplace and your effectiveness in the marketplace. This disease undermines your your witness. This disease undermines your, your ability to read the Word and embrace it and understand it. This ability undermines your prayer... This disease undermines your prayer life. This disease is horrific and we need to know it. We need to understand what it is and we need to to get it out of our lives because odds are in the United Kingdom, my guess would be that at least 50 to 75% of Christians are infected with this disease. Now the good news about the disease is that there is a cure and we'll talk about the cure. And it's not nearly as drastic as radiation therapy or chemotherapy. There is a cure, but if we do not deal with this disease, it will 
ultimately destroy us. And the disease is called unbelief. Unbelief. It's a disease that's spoken of frequently in the Bible, but is a disease that is prevalent in the church, particularly in Western nations. And even for people who are not from uh, necessarily a Western nation, even people who come into the United Kingdom often get infected with this disease, this disease called unbelief. And we need to know what unbelief is, and we need to get rid of it in our lives. Because it is every bit as devastating as I've told you. The Lord over the last uh, few months has really been taking me on a journey in this area of unbelief and actually in uh, in a journey ultimately to move into faith. And I have been astounded at how much I found unbelief in my own life, even as a pastor. I've been astounded at how much I found unbelief, even though I've been walking with the Lord for more years than many of you have been alive. This unbelief we've got to deal with. Now we need to understand what it's not. Because unbelief is commonly misunderstood. Unbelief is not simply a lack of faith. A lack of faith. You know, Jesus frequently talked to his disciples. Oh, you of little faith. Where is your faith? Oh, you're lacking faith. That is not the same thing of unbelief. Uh, the lack of faith is the absence of something, but unbelief is something quite different. It is the presence of something in our lives. Unbelief is also not the same thing as doubt. You know, in Jude, the 22nd verse, uh, Jude tells us that we are to deal mercifully with people who doubt. Doubt is something completely different than unbelief. Yes, doubt is a lack of certainty that is a problem with our faith, Yes, doubt that God has some strong things to say about doubt. But overall, when it comes to doubt, God deals mercifully with us to pull us out of doubt and replace that doubt with an even greater faith. So unbelief is not doubt. It's not asking questions. It's not wondering, oh, where is the evidence for for the resurrection? I need to have more evidence for the resurrection. Or uh, I, I, want, I want to see more. I have questions that I want to ask God. That's not the same thing as unbelief. There's nothing wrong with us asking the questions. I think God actually encourages us to do that. But unbelief is something quite different. Put simply, unbelief is negative faith. It's negative faith. It's formed actually by just adding the, the, uh, uh, the letter alpha on the front end of the Greek word uh, pistis, which is faith, and negating that word. It is a negative faith. It is an anti-faith. It is a mistrust, not a lack of trust. So there is a power to unbelief, and unbelief works against positive faith in God. Unbelief works against our trust in God. Unbelief works against the things of God. When there is unbelief in our lives, it is not neutral. It is not something that's just innocent. It's not something that just hangs out there and, uh, and we just need to deal with it. Unbelief is something that we need to, to tear out of our lives, to root out of our lives, to get it out and see it replaced with faith. Because unbelief works in a negative way. 
Unbelief works against the things of God and against the kingdom of God. And unbelief is all around us. Uh, We see unbelief uh, every single day if you're in the marketplace. Even this nation. uh, uh, I, I was with a guy last Thursday who described it as a blanket of unbelief that sits over the United Kingdom. And so even if you're from a nation where the power of God is moving mightily, when you come into the United Kingdom, the tendency is to start unbelieving, to begin to develop this negative faith in our lives. And it can happen in many different ways. I mean, uh, for instance, you you might hear a a great story about what God has has been doing uh, with uh, this group that's been traveling around and and doing the expedition and all of that. And you hear great stories about how God is moving, how people come to faith in Jesus. And there's this little thing in the back of your mind that says, oh, you know, that's really great for Thailand or that's really great for China, but uh, it's not really going to happen here. Oh, I'm so thankful that there's a new openness in China, but, oh, the United Kingdom is just so closed. You know what that is? That's unbelief. That is a negative faith statement where you're saying the United Kingdom is so closed to God that God cannot possibly move here. You see how that works? Uh, I've seen it happen in, in, in individual believers' lives where they'll say, Oh, you know, it's so good. Uh, I'm so glad that God's using my brother or sister in Christ, but He can't use me because I really don't know the Bible as well as my cell group leader does. Or uh, I, I can't speak as well as Davi does. Or uh, I, I just I have a hard time sharing my faith. It just doesn't come naturally to me. Those are all unbelief statements. God can't use me because I, I just don't pray enough. That's unbelief. You know, when you say that, you are making your lack of prayer more powerful than God. That is unbelief. And it is present in our lives and it is debilitating to us. It's the kind of thing that can, can make us think, you know, as a church, oh, the United Kingdom has changed its laws for, for, uh, for people to come up from South Africa, so, so our church can't have the impact that it once had. Uh, we don't have the same amount of people, and so we're not as powerful. God can't do as much. Oh, maybe the really great days were behind us. Uh, you know, all of those are unbelief statements. They're unbelief statements, and they undermine the kingdom of God in your life. And they are an offense to God. They are an offense to God. They are an offense to the God who told Gideon, oh, you've got way too many people. You need fewer. They're an offense to God that says, oh, Abraham, just go ahead and leave your land. I'll show you some place to go. And we have to remove it from our lives. Because as long as it's there, it's not neutral. It has a negative impact. And we really see the, the, the negative impact of unbelief so clearly in this passage that we read today. Now, when we look at this passage, it's important to remember that in the New Testament originally, there were not chapters and verses. And so the chapters and verses were added later artificially to help us to read and understand it. You know, it's, it's, it's much easier than, than hoping that everybody has the same Bible and say, oh, go to page 1266 and oh, about three-fourths of the way down the page. I mean, that doesn't make quite as much sense. So the chapters and verses came in. 
But sometimes they create an artificial division and can lead us to miss something that God actually wants to say to us. Now in this story, Jesus had just been on the other side of the lake where he had set free the man who was struggling with 5,000 demons. Massive demonstration of power. Massive demonstration of power. He comes back to the other side of the lake. The people all gather around. They want to see him. They've heard about the miracles. They've heard about all the things going on. Uh, Just as in, in today's society, people want to crowd around and see the stars and see the miracle workers and all that. People wanted to get a glimpse of Jesus. They wanted to see him. They wanted to hear him. They wanted to hang out with him. They maybe wanted to be able to tell their grandchildren, hey, I I met this great prophet up in Galilee, and it was really amazing the kinds of things he taught. So so the crowd had gathered around. Some people were believers, uh, wanting to follow Jesus, wanting to learn from him as a rabbi. Some of the people were there were real doubters. They had serious questions. And some of the people were just filled with unbelief. This guy is a fake. He's a fraud. He's a charlatan. He can't, he, he can't do much of anything. And so in the midst of this crowd comes the synagogue ruler, Jairus. Now it's really stunning here what Jairus does. Remember, he's a synagogue ruler, and the synagogue rulers, also known as Pharisees in many cases, uh, did not like Jesus very much. In fact, uh, they, they wanted Jesus to fail. They were working against Jesus. But here is Jairus jeopardizing his position in the community, which is a very high position in the community, jeopardizing everything because his little girl is sick. And he comes in and he falls at the feet of Jesus and says, Jesus, my little girl is sick. She's about to die. But I know if you come, you can heal her and she'll be well. What a massive demonstration of faith this is. So Jesus says, okay, I'll come along. So they're walking along, and then here's another woman who's filled with faith in what God can do and what God will do through His servant Jesus. And she thinks, you know, I've wasted all of my money trying to get well, and I just keep getting worse and worse and worse. If I can only touch the hem of His robe, if I can only touch His cloak... I know that I'll be healed. And so she reaches out, she pushes through the crowd, she grabs on and she barely, barely, barely just kind of touches him. So much so that normally you wouldn't feel it, but immediately Jesus senses that the power of God has gone out from him. And immediately the woman senses that she's healed on the inside. But now Jesus stops and says, okay, who touched me? And so she's terrified because that's just not the done thing for a woman to do in that culture. Maybe she's fearful of getting a rebuke. Maybe she's fearful that Jesus is going to take it back. But finally she comes and confesses and says, Oh, it was me. I just had this faith. If I touched you, uh, I knew I'd be healed. And I touched you and I was healed. And notice what Jesus says. Well, go in peace, daughter. Your faith has healed you. Now we know that Jesus healed her. But Jesus healed her because of her faith, because of her belief, because of her trust, which is all the same word, by the way, in the Greek. Jesus healed her, and another demonstration of faith occurs. But just about this time, now we begin to move into unbelief. Because a couple of men come and says, Jairus, they say, Jairus, don't bother the teacher anymore. Your daughter's dead. Everybody's stunned. Jairus must be stunned, but... Jesus turns to him and says, hey, don't be afraid, just believe, just have faith, just trust, have this positive faith. And so they go along, 
And, uh, and as they get closer, Jesus decides to take Peter, James, and John along with him, and the mother and the father. And they come up to the house, and there's weeping and crying and mourning. They're making a big show of it. And Jesus comes in and says, hey, what's all this commotion? Now what's happened is they're all believing that she died, what she actually did. And, and they're thinking in their hearts, they're thinking in their minds, oh, there's no hope. This girl is gone. It's all over. She's dead. Now all we need to do is mourn. And Jesus comes in and says, hey, listen, don't worry. She's not dead. She's just sleeping. And what do they do? They laugh at him. They're scorning him and mocking him in unbelief. They are releasing a negative faith into the situation. They're releasing this confidence that Jesus is not able to do anything about this. That's that negative faith. And so what does Jesus do? It's really interesting here. Now, if it was me, I'd tell you what I'd be doing. I'd say, okay, people, stand back. Watch this. Hey, babe. Get up. I'm good, baby. You know, that would be me. You know, it's good that Jesus didn't do that. He probably never said baby in his life, you know. Uh, But that's not what he does. Notice what he does. He forces everybody to leave. He puts them all out. Why? It's because of the unbelief that's going on there. So he puts everybody out. There's just Peter, James, and John. And there's the mother and the father who had expressed such faith in Jesus. And at that moment, there is an atmosphere of belief. There's an atmosphere of faith that comes into that room. And Jesus says, little girl, get up. And she gets up. She raises from the dead. He says, she walks around, says, give her something to eat. Now, don't spread this around too much. Um, You know, it's not my time quite yet. Isn't that stunning? He removed that unbelief. Now to emphasize this whole issue of unbelief, Mark continues in telling the story. And that's why understanding that the the chapters were added later is so important. Because from there, Jesus goes to Nazareth, his hometown. And in Nazareth, his hometown, the unbelief is even stronger that he encounters. He goes to the synagogue... Uh, he teaches, they know about the miracles he's done. And what do the people do? They say, well, who does this guy think he is? Where is he getting this wisdom that he does all these miracles? After all, we know what school he went to. We know his upbringing here. You know, where did he get all of this? And after all, isn't this Mary's son? Now, it's important to note in that comment, normally it would have been said, isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this the carpenter's son? But by saying, isn't this Mary's son, they're pointing back to his questionable parentage. After all, everybody in the community would have known that Jesus was conceived outside of marriage. Nobody would have believed that it was the Spirit of God that had, did it, that had done it. Everybody would have said, hey, this is the guy that, you know, his mother is a little questionable in terms of her morals, in terms of her character, you know, how much. So they're scorning him. And then they go on, hey, but, and we know his brothers and sisters, we know what, uh, what miserable people they are, or what trouble they are, or, or we just know how sinful they are. And, and all of this comes up, and what is it? It is unbelief, it is mocking that's coming up in the hearts of the people. Jesus says, you know, only in his own hometown is a prophet without honor. 
And then notice what Mark says here. He says, He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and see them well because he was amazed at their unbelief. Now the NIV here says lack of faith. It's a mistranslation. It's actually unbelief. It's the same word, unbelief. You see, the unbelief of the people in Nazareth prevented the Son of God Himself from doing miracles there. Now, you know, sometimes we argue, did it actually prevent Jesus from doing it? Or Jesus cho- did Jesus choose not to do it uh, because of their unbelief? It actually doesn't make any difference because ultimately it's the same outcome. There were no mighty works done because of the unbelief of the people except lay hands on a few sick people and see them well. Now, I don't know about you, but most of the time I would be really thrilled if I'd laid my hands on a few sick people and seen them get well. You know, if I laid my hands on a few of you and, you know, we we saw uh, swine flu go or cancer go or, you know, some of these other things go away, I'd be saying, wow, this is great. Let's do this some more. But for Jesus, this this was amazing that he could only do a few you know, a few sick people, and he couldn't do anything really, really amazing because of the unbelief of the people that was there. Now, if unbelief had such a dramatic impact on our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who was fully human, who did his work by by the, the Spirit of God, but who also was fully God, if unbelief was able to undermine His mighty works, if unbelief was able to prevent uh, powerful ministry from occurring in, in His life, in the context there in Nazareth, how much more so is it going to have an impact in our lives? Even a little bit of this negative faith, this anti-faith that we hold in our hearts and our lives, even a little bit of this corrupts the whole thing. One of my favorite stories, um, and it's different, uh, a different story for those of you who are here this morning, so you don't have to hear everything the same, uh, is a, a story of a man who allowed his young daughter to have several of her friends over for a sleepover at the house. So there was about a half a dozen of these girls over, and they wanted to watch an 18-rated film. And No, excuse me, they wanted to watch a 15-rated film. It wasn't 18, it was just 15. And, uh, and, and the father said, no, I'm sorry, you guys are too young, this would be inappropriate, and there's some bad language, and I just don't approve of the content there. And I said, but dad, you know, there's only a little bit of bad language here, there's only a little bit of wrong here, uh, please, let us... no, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, you can't. And so they were upset, but they got over it pretty quickly, as girls do. Uh, about an hour and a half later, the father comes in with a, a big pan of brownies. Now, these were American-style brownies, big, thick, chocolatey, lots of nuts, you know, really good wholesomeness in there. And, uh, and the father comes in and says, Hey, girls, I, I know you were disappointed uh, by not being able to watch this film, so to make it up to you, I decided to, bring, to make you this huge pan of brownies. And his daughter says, Oh, Dad, thank you so much. That's my favorite. You know, and the girls, they all run up to, to get their brownies. He says, Oh, by the way, there's just one thing. Uh, I, uh, you know the cat litter box? Uh, they say, yeah. Well, I, I scooped out a little bit of cat poo and mixed it in with the brownies. But don't worry about it because I baked it out. You know, you probably won't taste it very much. Uh, it's not too... And they go, oh, Dad, oh, that's terrible. That's awful. And none of the girls would eat the brownies. Isn't that amazing? All that wholesome goodness. 
Unbelief works in the same way. And we need to learn to understand how awful, how foul unbelief really is and how unbelief really corrupts everything. And how unbelief will undermine your effectiveness in the marketplace, undermines your walk with Jesus, undermines your destiny in Jesus Christ in this world, in this life. And so we must deal with this unbelief in our lives. So how do we do it? First thing, we need to ask the Spirit of God to reveal the unbelief in our lives. Uh, I've been doing this now for several months, and I have been amazed at the amount of unbelief that I've been carrying around. And as soon as I see it, as soon as I say something about it, I, I just try, I say, I, you know, I try to get rid of it and I deal with it as I'll, I'll talk to you about here in a moment. And I've been encouraging our people at City Temple to do the same thing. Uh, I've been preaching uh, this, this whole series. Uh, I've done several weeks on unbelief and I've just moved into doubt. And I've been encouraging them to expose unbelief in each other. And we've been doing that and we've been challenging each other quite a bit. And it's actually been a lot of fun to expose the unbelief because we want to deal with it. We want to get rid of it. So the first thing you need to do is say, Lord, show me every speck of unbelief in my life. You see, the problem with unbelief is that if we just allow a little bit of it to continue, it will grow and multiply and eventually corrupt the whole thing. It's like allowing just a little bit of cancer to stay in our bodies. We want to take it all out. We want to get rid of every single cell of cancer, if if at all possible. Because we know that cancer left in the body will grow and multiply once again and make us sick once again and bring us down once again. And unbelief grows and multiplies in the same way that cancer does. So we say, Holy Spirit, x-ray my being, x-ray my mind, my will, my emotions, x-ray my spirit, if you will, and reveal every little bit of unbelief in my life. Now, once the Spirit of God reveals unbelief in your life, then you need to repent. You need to repent. Repentance involves two things. The first dynamic of repentance is confession. If we confess our sins, John 1, 9, 1 John 1, 9, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession is agreeing with God that sin is sin and agreeing with God how awful sin is. You know, the tendency in most of our lives is just to say, uh, oh God, yeah, I know I've sinned, I, I know it was bad, but I, I only did it because I was tired. Or, what are we doing? We're not really confessing, we're giving excuses to God. That's not the same thing. We need to confess sin as sin. We need to see how foul it is, how, uh, how awful it is, how repulsive it is to God. You know, I, I, it's a bit like dog poo. I, I've never seen a dog owner go around, and I, I've seen him pick up the poo. Nobody likes it. Yeah, I've never seen a dog owner say, Oh, goody! You know, Scotty, he made the poo-poo. I'll get to pick it up. Isn't that fun? You know, and furthermore, I've never seen a dog owner save it. And I'll pick it up and they say, oh, you know, I'm going to have this bronzed. I'm going to put this on my mantle. I'm going to hang on to this because this so, looks so nice. Hey, let's invite the neighbors over. Smell this, guys. You, know, you don't do that in South Africa, do you? Okay, I didn't want to offend anybody in case it was some, you know, culture in South Africa that I wasn't aware of. But uh, no, you don't do that. Why? Because it's awful. 
It's disgusting. It's filthy. It's smelly. It's germy. It gets worms. You need to look at your sin in the same way that you would look at a pile of dog poo. And you don't want to allow sin to remain in your life any more than you want to put dog poo on your mantle. So you have to confess, God, this is like poo. This is terrible. This is awful. This is foul. This is disgusting. I admit it. It is awful. And then the second dynamic of repentance is to renounce it. To throw it away. To throw it away. So you say, God, this is repulsive. I, I, I turn away from it. I throw it away. And I go in the other direction. That's what repentance is all about. So as soon as the Spirit of God reveals unbelief in your life, you say, God, oh, that's disgusting. I never realized I had it. Lord, I, I just I, I throw it away. It's repulsive. I don't want it. I want to go in the other direction. And you know what? When we repent, God always neutralizes that sin in our lives. Repentance always works because of the cross of Christ. On the cross, Jesus paid the price for all of our sin. That means that when we repent, that sin is washed away. That sin is neutralized. And the same thing happens to the unbelief in your life. When you repent, confess it and renounce it. Because of the cross of Christ, God forgives you and cleanses you from all unrighteousness. And that's really good news that we have in Christ Jesus. So we ask the Spirit to reveal it to us. We repent. And then we need to replace it with faith. Replace it with positive belief. And we do that first by asking the Holy Spirit to do it. And the Holy Spirit loves to answer that kind of prayer. So we say, Spirit of God, please allow the faith to well up within me. Replace this unbelief with faith. And then we continue that by focusing in on Jesus, by focusing in on the good things that God is doing around the world. And it is so thrilling to hear the stories about how God is on the move around the world. I was with a man last Thursday who had just come back from a meeting in the Far East with about 3,000 church leaders uh, from from all over uh, many Muslim nations. And uh, he was talking with uh, one man who was from a very large Muslim nation. And this man was talking about how they had five million people in their prayer movement. And it was just one of many in the nation. Five million people. And even though this was a very large, uh, very populous Muslim nation, they felt convinced that by 2050 it was going to be a Christian nation because of what God was doing. I mean, those kinds of stories come against our unbelief. They will replace our unbelief. They confront our unbelief. Because let me tell you, if God can do this in a Muslim nation, certainly He can do this in Britain. If God can do this in churches that are struggling even to have a sound system, that are struggling for literature, God can certainly do this in our churches right here in the city of London. And so we need to focus in on Jesus. Focus in on what Jesus wants to accomplish. Focus in on what Jesus has already done. Uh, Understand that the promise of Jesus is that if we have faith in Him, faith in Him, if we believe in Him, we will do what He's been doing and we'll do even greater things because He's gone to the Father and has sent His Holy Spirit who lives in us. This is true. And so we need to replace this unbelief 
Fill up that void with faith. Asking the Holy Spirit and focusing in on Jesus. Celebrating Jesus. Looking to Jesus. Obeying Jesus. Following Jesus. Unbelief is not something that's innocent. It's not something that's neutral. It's something that's very negative. It is against the Word of God. It is against the kingdom of God. And it undermines every good thing in our lives. But the good news is that in Jesus Christ, unbelief can be overcome. The good news is that in Jesus Christ, in the the cross and the empty tomb, there is power, there is power to destroy this negative faith, this anti-faith, this unbelief. The good news is that the Spirit of God is living inside of each and every one of you as a Christian. And God intends for you to do mighty things, not only in the church, but also in the marketplace and also all around the world. This is the truth. This is God's Word. It leaves no room for unbelief, but fills us with faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I do pray that you would begin right now your work in our hearts and our lives of revealing this unbelief. Lord, even now, even as uh, we're going to go into another song and, and do some other things here, Lord, before people leave, I begin, pray that you'd begin to show them the unbelief that's in their lives. And Lord, I pray that you would begin to lead us to repent. Father, I'm thankful that we don't have to wait until we're home to repent, that we can confess sin and renounce sin whenever sin rears its ugly head. And I pray, Father, that you would teach us to do that with the sin of unbelief. That as soon as it rears its ugly head in our lives, as soon as you reveal it by the power of your Holy Spirit or through the study of your Word or or with the encouragement of a brother and sister in Christ, as soon as it's exposed, I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to confess it and renounce it. And Lord, I pray that you'd not stop there in our lives, but you'd also go on to replace that unbelief in our lives with faith, pure faith, that we might be people who, like Jairus, would just believe. And in just believing, we would see you do mighty things to the glory of Jesus. Holy Spirit, come, fill our hearts Fill our minds. Work in us now. Free us from unbelief. And set us free in faith to live for Jesus. For we pray all these things in the name and authority of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.